Section 59 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malachi Orozco. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Una of the Garden. Part 5. Chapter 9. The next week, David Baker came to Stillwater. He was a few years older than Eric, but the two had always been close friends. Eric would have trusted David with his life. David was an ugly man, with a clever, irregular, charming face, and a voice that was as soft and musical as a woman's. He looked curiously at Eric when the two young men were alone in the latter's room. Now, Murray... I want to know what this is all about. You wrote me a letter entreating me in the name of friendship to come to you at once. Accordingly, I come post-haste, though muchly puzzled about the mysterious patient, sex unknown, whose throat and vocal organs you want examined. Explain why you have inveigled me hither. I want you to do me a service, David, said Eric quietly. I didn't care to go into details by letter. I have met in Stillwater a young girl whom I have learned to love. I have asked her to marry me, but although she cares for me, she refuses to do so because she is dumb. I wish you to examine her and find out the causes of her defect and if it can be cured. She can hear perfectly, and all her other faculties are entirely normal. In order that you may better understand the case, I must tell you her history. This Eric proceeded to do. David Baker listened with grave attention. Whatever his opinion of Eric's wisdom in falling in love with the dumb girl of Una's antecedents, he kept it to himself. Very soon the strange case enlisted his professional interest to the exclusion of all other thoughts. It is very curious, he said when Eric had finished, and very unusual but it is not totally unprecedented. There are some similar cases on record, I believe. Well, I will see if anything can be done for this girl. I cannot express any opinion on the matter until I have examined her. The next morning Eric took David up to the Marshall place. As they neared the old garden, a strain of music came flooding through the resinous morning arcades of the spruce wood. A wild, sorrowful, appealing cry full of indescribable pathos, yet marvelously sweet. "'What is that?' exclaimed David, starting. "'That is Una playing on her violin,' answered Eric. "'She is a positive genius in that respect, and improvises wonderful melodies.' When they reached the garden, Una rose from the stone bench to meet them. Her lovely, luminous eyes distended, her face flushed with the excitement of mingled hope and fear. Ye gods, muttered David helplessly. He could not hide his amazement, and Eric smiled to see it. The latter had not failed to understand the significance of David's previous silence regarding the affair, and knew that his friend considered him little better than a lunatic. Una, this is my friend Dr. Baker, he said. Una held out her hand with a smile. Her beauty, as she stood there in the fresh morning sunshine among her sister lilies, was something to take away a man's breath. David, who was by no means lacking in confidence, 
and generally had a ready tongue where women were concerned, found himself as mute and awkward as a schoolboy as he bowed over her hand. But Una was charmingly at ease. Eric smiled to remember how different this was from his first meeting with her. He realized how far Una had come since then, and how much she had developed. With a little gesture of invitation, Una led the way through the garden to the wild plum lane, and the two men followed. Eric, she is divine, said David in an undertone. Last night, well, to tell you the truth, I had a rather poor opinion of your sanity, but but now I'm consumed with a fierce envy. She is the loveliest creature I ever saw. Eric introduced David to the marshals, and then hurried away to his school. On the way down the marshal lane, he met Neil, and was half startled by the glare of hatred in the Italian boy's eyes. Pity succeeded the momentary alarm. Neil's face had grown thin and worn. His eyes were sunken and feverishly bright. He looked years older than on the day Eric had first met him. Prompted by a sudden impulse, Eric stopped and held out his hand. Neil, can't we be friends? he said. I am sorry if I have been the cause of inflicting any pain on you. Friends, never, said Neil passionately. You have taken Una from me. I shall hate you always. He strode fiercely up the lane, and Eric, with a shrug of his shoulders, went on his way. The day seemed interminably long to him. David had not returned when he went home to dinner, but when he went to his room in the evening, he found his friend staring out of the window. Well, he said impatiently, as David wheeled around but still kept silence. What have you to say to me? Have you discovered what is the matter with Una? There is nothing the matter with her, answered David slowly, flinging himself on a chair by the window. What do you mean? Just what I say. Her vocal organs are all perfect, uh, as far as they are concerned. There is absolutely no reason why she should not speak. After all, I can't express my conclusion in any better words than Janet Marshall used when she said that Una can't speak because her mother wouldn't. That is all there is to it. The trouble is psychological, not physical. Medical skill is helpless before it. Then there is no hope, said Eric in a tone of despair. You can do nothing for her. I can do nothing for her, but I do not exactly say there is no hope. Come, David, I am in no mood for guessing riddles. Speak plainly, man. David frowned reflectively. I don't think I can make it plain to you. It is not very plain to myself, and it is only a vague theory of mine, of course. I can't substantiate it by any facts. In short, Eric, I think that it is possible that Una may speak sometime if she ever wants to, badly enough. Wants to? Why, man, she wants to as badly as it is possible for anyone to want anything. She loves me and she won't marry me because she can't speak. Don't you suppose a girl under such circumstances would want to speak as much as anyone could? I don't mean that sort of wanting, no matter how strong the wish may be. I mean a sudden, vehement 
passionate inrush of desire, physical, psychical, mental, all in one, mighty enough to rend the invisible fetters that hold her speech in bondage. If any occasion should arise to evoke such a desire, I believe that Una would speak, and having once spoken would thenceforth be normal in that respect. All this sounds like great nonsense to me, said Eric restlessly. I suppose you have an idea what you're talking about, but I haven't, and it practically means that there is no hope for her or me. Even if your theory be correct, it is not likely that such an occasion as you speak of will ever arise, and Una will never marry me. Don't give up so easily, old fellow. Women have been known to change their minds. Not Una, said Eric miserably. I tell you she has all her mother's unfaltering will and tenacity of purpose, although Una is free from any taint of pride or selfishness. I thank you for your sympathy and interest, David. You've done all you could, but heavens what it would have meant to me if you could have helped her. With a groan, Eric flung himself on the bed and buried his face in the pillow. It was a bitter moment for him, but athwart his own despair came the thought of Una. Did you tell her what you've told me? he asked. I told her that I could not help her. I said nothing to her of my theory. It, it would have been of no use. How did she take it? Very bravely and quietly. But the look on her face. Eric, I felt as if I had murdered something. She bade me a, a mute goodbye with a pitiful smile and went upstairs. I did not see her again, although I stayed to dinner at her uncle's insistence. Those old marshals are a queer pair. I like them, though. They are, they are strong and staunch. Good friends, bitter enemies. They were sorry I could not help Una. But I saw plainly that old Thomas Marshall thought I had been meddling with predestination and attempting it. Eric smiled mechanically. I must go up and see Una. You'll excuse me, won't you, David? My books are there. Help yourself. But when Eric reached the Marshall house, he only saw old Janet, who told him that Una was in her room and refused to see him. She thought you had come, and she left this with me to give to you, master, she said, handing him a little note. It was very brief and blotted with tears. Do not come any more, Eric, it ran. I must not see you, because it would only make it harder for us both. You must go away and forget me. You will be thankful for this some day. I shall always love and pray for you. I must see her, said Eric. Aunt Janet, be my friend. Tell her she must see me for a little while, at least. Janet shook her head, but went upstairs. She soon returned. She says she cannot come down. You know she means it, master, and it is of no use to coax. And I must say, I think she is right. Since she won't marry you, it is better for you not to see her. Eric was compelled to go home with no better comfort than this. In the morning, after a restless night, he drove David Baker to the station. It was Saturday, so that he did not have to teach. In the afternoon, he again went to the Marshall Place, determined to make another effort to see Una and overcome her resolution. But the result was the same and Thomas Marshall said gravely, Master, you know I like you, and I am sorry Una thinks as she does, though maybe she is right. 
I be glad to see you often for your own sake. But as things are, I must tell you plainly, you better not come here any more. It will do no good. And the sooner you and she get over thinking about each other, the better for you both. Go now, lad, and God bless you. Do you know what you're asking me to do? asked Eric hoarsely. I know I'm asking a hard thing for your own good, master. It is not as if Una would ever change her mind. Tush, Janet woman, don't be weeping. You women are foolish creatures. Do you think tears can wash such things away? Master, if you take my advice, you'll give up the school and go back to your own world as soon as may be. Eric went home with a white, set face. He had never thought it possible for a man to suffer so. What was he to do? It seemed impossible to go on with life. There was no life apart from Una. Anguish wrung his soul until his strength went from him and youth and hope turned to gall in his heart. He never afterwards could tell how he lived through the following Sunday, nor how he taught school as usual on Monday. His body seemed to him an automaton that moved and worked and spoke mechanically, while his tortured spirit, pent up within, endured pain that left its impress on him forever. Out of that fiery furnace of suffering, Eric Murray was to go forth a man who had put boyhood behind him and looked out on life with eyes that saw into it and beyond. On Monday evening, he went again to the old garden. He had no expectation of finding Una there, for he thought she would avoid the spot. But he could not keep away from it, although the thought of it was added torture, and he vibrated between a wild wish that he might never see it again and a sick wonder how he could go away and leave it, putting it out of his life as if it had never been. That strange old garden where he had met and wooed his love watching her develop and blossom under his eyes like some rare flower, until in the space of three short months she had passed from exquisite childhood into still more exquisite womanhood. As he crossed the pasture field before he entered the spruce wood, he came upon Neil Marshall fence-building. Neil did not look up as Eric passed, and Eric hardly was aware of his presence. The garden was very silent and dreamy in the thick yellow sunshine of the September evening. There were a few flowers now. Most of the lilies that had queened it so bravely along the walks a few days before were withered. The grass had grown long and sere and unkempt. But in the corners the torches of the goldenrod were kindling and a few pale blue asters nodded here and there. The garden kept its own strange attractiveness, as a woman with youth long past still preserves an atmosphere of remembered beauty and innate, indestructible charm. Eric walked drearily and carelessly about it, and finally sat down on the old dike in the shadows of the overhanging spruce boughs. There he gave himself up to a reverie, poignant and bittersweet, in which he lived over again everything that had passed in the garden since his first meeting with Una. So deep was his abstraction that he was conscious of nothing around him. 
He did not hear stealthy footsteps behind him in the dim spruce wood. He did not even see Una as she came slowly around a curve in the plum lane. Una had sought the old garden for the healing of her heartbreak, if healing were possible for her. Years seemed to have passed over her in those few days. Her face was pale and strained, with bluish transparent shadows under her large eyes. She walked slowly and absently, like a woman in a dream. She had no thought of seeing Eric there, and as soon as she perceived him she stopped short, the blood rushing wildly over her face. The next moment it ebbed, leaving her white as marble. Horror flashed in her eyes, blank, deadly horror. Behind Eric, Neil Marshall was standing, tense, crouched, murderous. Even at that distance Una saw the look on his face, saw what he held in his hand, and realized in one dizzying flash of understanding what it meant. All this photographed itself on her brain in a second. She knew that by the time she could reach across the garden to warn Eric it would be too late. Yet she must warn him. She must, she must. A mighty surge of desire seemed to rise up within her and overwhelm her like a wave of the sea, a surge that swept everything before it in an irresistible flood. As Neil Marshall, slowly and vindictively, with the face of a demon, lifted the axe he held in his hand, Una sprang to the top of the stone dike. Eric! Eric! Look behind you! Look behind you! Eric started up, confused, bewildered as the voice came shrieking across the garden. He did not in the least realize that it was Una who had spoken, but he blindly obeyed the command. He whirled around and saw Neil Marshall, who was looking, not at him, but past him at Una. The Italian boy's face was ashen, his eyes filled with terror and, and incredulity. The axe lying at his feet where he had dropped it, in his unutterable amazement at hearing Una's cry, told the whole story. But before Eric could utter a word, Neil turned and fled like a hunted creature into the shadows of the spruce wood. The next moment, a girlish form flung itself upon Eric's breast, laughing and crying in the same breath. Oh, Eric, I can speak. I can speak. Oh, it is so wonderful, Eric. Eric, I love you. I love you. Chapter 10 It is a miracle, said Thomas Marshall in an odd tone. It was the first time he had spoken since Eric and Una had rushed in hand in hand, like two children intoxicated with joy and wonder, and gasped out their story together to him and Janet. No miracle, said Eric. David said it might happen. I had no hope that it would. He could explain it to you if he were here. Thomas Marshall shook his head. I doubt if he could, Master. He or anyone. It is near enough to a miracle for me. Let us thank God reverently and humbly that he has seen fit to lift his curse from the innocent. Your doctors may explain it as they like, lad, but they won't get much nearer to it than that. It is awesome. That is what it is. Janet, woman, I feel as if I were in a dream. Can Una really speak? 
Indeed I can, Uncle, said Una, with a raptured glance at Eric. Oh, I don't know how it came to me. I felt that I must speak, and I did. And it is so easy now. Seems as if I could always have done it. She spoke naturally and easily. Her voice was very clear and soft and musical, without a trace of the Scotch accent of her uncle and aunt. Oh, I am so glad that the first word I said was your name, dearest, she murmured to Eric. What about Neil? said Thomas Marshall gravely, rousing himself from his abstraction of wonder. What are we to do with him when he returns? This is a sad business. Eric had almost forgotten about Neil in his overwhelming amazement and joy. We must forgive him, Mr. Marshall. It was only an evil impulse, and think of the good that has resulted from it. True, master, but that does not alter the terrible fact that the boy had murder in his heart, that he would have killed you. And we have cared for him and instructed him as our own. It is a hard thing, and I do not see what we are to do. We can't act as if nothing has happened. We can never trust him again. But Neil Marshall solved the problem himself. When Eric returned home that night, he found old Robert Williamson in the kitchen, regaling himself with a lunch of bread and cheese after a trip to the station. Good night, master. Glad to see you are looking more like yourself. I told the wife it was only a lover's quarrel, most like. She's been worrying about you. But what kind of rumpus was kicked up at the Marshall place tonight? Eric started. What did Robert Williamson mean? How could he have heard? What do you mean? he asked. Why, us folk at the station knew there must have been a, a to-do of some kind when Neil Marshall went off on the harvest excursion as he did. You know, this was the night the excursion train left. There was a dozen or so fellows from hereabouts went. We were all standing around, chatting, when Lincoln Frame drove up full speed, and Neil Marshall jumped out of his rig. He just bolted into the office, got his ticket, and out again, and onto the train without a word to anyone, and as black-looking as the old scratch. We was all too surprised to speak till he was gone. Lincoln couldn't give us much information. He said Neil had come to their place about dark, looking as if he was being chased, and offered to sell that black filly of his to Lincoln for $60 if Link would drive him to the station in time to catch the excursion train. The filly is Neil's own, and Lincoln had been wanting to buy her, so he jumped at the chance. Neil had brought the filly with him, and Lincoln hitched up and took him to the station. Neil hadn't no luggage of any kind and wouldn't open his lips the whole way up, Lincoln says. We concluded him and old Thomas had had a row. Do you know anything about it? Or was you so wrapped up sweetnarding that you didn't hear or see nothing else? Eric reflected rapidly. He was greatly relieved to find that Neil had gone. He knew that he would never return, and that this was the best for all concerned. Old Robert must be told part of the truth, at least, since it would soon be known that Una could speak. There, there was some trouble at the Marshall Place tonight, Mr. Williamson, he said quietly. Neil behaved himself badly and frightened Una terribly. So terribly that a very surprising thing happened. She has found herself able to speak and can speak perfectly. God bless my soul, Master, what an extraordinary thing, ejaculated old Bob. Are you in earnest? Or are you trying to see how much of a fool you can make of the old man? No, Mr. Williamson, I assure you that it is no more than the simple truth. Dr. Baker had told me that a shock might cure her. As for Neil, 
he has gone, and I think it well that he has. Not caring to discuss the matter further, Eric left the kitchen. But as he mounted the stairs to his room, he heard old Robert muttering like a man in hopeless bewilderment. Well, I never heard of anything like this. Them marshals are an unaccountable lot and no mistake. I must wake up mother and tell her about it or I won't be able to sleep. Now that everything was settled, Eric was anxious to give up teaching and go back to his own work. True, he had signed a contract to keep the school for a year, but he knew that the trustees would let him off if he procured a suitable substitute. He resolved to teach until the fall vacation, which came in October, and then go. This would involve a full explanation with his father, and Eric was pondering how he might best make it. I'll write him a letter tomorrow and tell him about Una, he decided. Mr. Murray, Sr., answered this letter in person. A week later, Eric, coming home from school, found his father sitting in Mrs. Williamson's prim parlor. Nothing was said about Eric's letter, however, until after tea. When they found themselves alone, Mr. Murray spoke abruptly. Eric, what about this girl? I hope you haven't gone and made a fool of yourself. It sounds remarkably like it. A girl that has been dumb all her life, a girl with no right to her father's name, a country girl, brought up in a place like Stillwater. Your wife will have to fill your mother's place, and your mother was a pearl among women. Do you think this girl is worthy of it? It isn't possible. Don't pronounce judgment until you've seen her, father, said Eric, smiling. Well, I shall look at her with the eyes of sixty, mind you, not the eyes of twenty-five. If she isn't what your wife ought to be, sir, you'll either give her up or paddle your own canoe. I shan't aid or abet you in making a fool of yourself, mind that. Eric bit his lip, but only said quietly, Come with me to see her, father. They went around by way of the main road and the marshal lane. Una was not in when they reached the house. She was up in the old garden, Janet said. They sat and talked a while with Janet and Thomas. When they left, the old man said, I like those people. They are rugged and grim, but there is good stuck in them, native refinement and strong character. But I hope your young lady hasn't got her aunt's mouth. Una's mouth is like a love song made incarnate and sweet flesh, said Eric enthusiastically. <laughs> said Mr. Murray. Well, he added tolerantly a moment later, I was a poet too for six months in my life, when I was courting your mother. Una was standing in the middle of the garden as they entered it. Out she came, shyly forward, to meet them, guessing who the tall, white-haired old gentleman with Eric was. As she approached, Eric saw with a thrill of exultation that she had never looked lovelier. She wore a dress of her favorite blue, simply and quaintly made as all her gowns were, revealing the perfect lines of her slender, supple figure. Her glossy black hair was wound about her head in a simple coronet, and her face was flushed daintily with excitement. She looked like a young queen, crowned with a ruddy splash of sunlight that fell through the old trees. Father, this is Una, said Eric proudly. Una held out her beautiful hand with a shyly murmured greeting. Mr. Murray took it and held it in his, looking so steadily and piercingly into her face that even her frank gaze wavered before the intensity of his keen old eyes. Then he drew her to him and kissed her on the forehead, 
Eric, he said huskily, I'd never have forgiven you if you hadn't fallen in love with her. The End End of Section 60 Recording by Malachi Orozco